Welcome back to another episode of Ramiumptum Ruminations. I'm the host, Scott. Today's episode is called Falsifiability and the Shelf. Thanks for coming back to listen to another episode. I appreciate you guys listening and liking, subscribing, and following along with the crazy ideas that bounce around in my head. This one will be a continuation of the discussion last week where we talked about the demarcation problem. So if you didn't listen to that one, I do recommend going back and listening to the primer I gave on the demarcation problem as presented by Karl Popper. I'm recording this one after the Thanksgiving holiday. I didn't get a chance to record some of my thoughts after Thanksgiving and put them into the last episode, so you get them a week late. I apologize for that. One of the things that many of us struggle with after having left the church, and by many of us I'm referring to post-Mormons, progressive Mormons, ex-Mormons, or even uh, PMOs, physically and mentally out. One of the things that, that... I have struggled with and from what I've read in the Reddit forums and seen in the various discussion boards, it's hard to connect to family after a faith change. And this holiday was particularly hard for me for a number of reasons. I won't go into all the details, but The day after Thanksgiving, I took my family to see the new Disney movie Encanto. And I'm not I'm not ashamed to admit that I typically. If if a kid's movie is really good, I will usually cry at the end. I've always been an emotional guy. That's just who I am. Oh, man, when I saw Encanto from the very beginning of the movie, it resonated so much with me and watching the movie was a very cathartic experience but it also left me really sad because the resolution that they have at the end of the movie is something that may never happen for me and my family so it was it was a bittersweet movie to watch but i did really enjoy it I hope that you guys had a good holiday with your families. And I do have an upcoming episode. Maybe this will be next week, but I do want to talk about interacting with our families after a faith change. I had a listener reach out and ask me an awesome question about it. And I answered him and it got my, got my mind working on, on a possible episode that might be good going into the holiday season. That all being said, let me, let me jump into this one. For a quick recap, Karl Popper presented the demarcation problem as a way to solve something that he saw with inductive reasoning. That is to say, inductive reasoning is you observe a thing, notice a pattern, 
create a hypothesis, test the hypothesis, and then develop a theory. The deductive reasoning or deductive logic on this is you do it almost backwards. You do you create your theory and your hypothesis, then you observe it for a confirmation of whether or not what you said was right or wrong. Now, last week's episode, I discussed the shelf a little bit, and I, I, I discussed specifically some of the truth claims of the church, the, 12, the articles of faith, and which ones can be falsified and which ones can't. Today, I want to talk about this same idea, this falsifiability, and examine the shelf. And the way I look at the shelf, I think would be helpful for a lot of people. When I think about the shelf, and I guess, I guess I'll start, I'll back up just a little bit. Many people who have left the church or are still in the church have this metaphorical shelf. If it's a term you've heard but you don't understand, I'm going to give you a brief explanation of what it is. The shelf is the metaphorical place where you put concepts or ideas that don't line up with your worldview. As a believing member of the church, this could be learning about the age of the earth and how that's incongruous with, with scriptures. It could be learning about the history of the church with blacks and the priesthood. And if you disagree with how that was handled, that item might go on the shelf. So I want to examine the shelf and think about how we might categorize the different types of things that we can put on the shelf. Because I think, I think if we look at it and try and break down the different items that belong on the shelf, I think that both a believer and a non-believer can come to a discussion together about these items. So here's how I look at it. And this is leaning on Karl Popper's demarcation. The items on the shelf can clearly fall into two categories. Falsifiable and non-falsifiable. To put it a little bit more simply, you could say we'll categorize the two lists as lists of things that you can prove or disprove and lists of things that you cannot prove or disprove. So for the next little for the next bit of the episode, I want to go over some of the things that people typically put on their shelf. And I want to discuss which of these two categories they might fall into. But before we do that, I think this sort of an exercise has value, especially for someone who's trying to make it work or trying to maintain some belief. Because you'll see which parts of belief are ones that you can still hold on to and which ones that warrant letting go of. So we'll start off with a big one. We'll start off with the claim that there is a God and that he or she or they love you. This sort of a claim would fall under the non-falsifiable category. So it's something that we can't prove or disprove. As we discussed in last week's episode, this sort of, a, this sort of an idea 
is something that requires faith to believe in it because it's not a concept that you can prove or disprove. For many people, this is why they leave religion after they deconstruct some of these ideas. Since it's something that they can't prove or disprove, they don't, they don't see the value in believing in it. But there are many people that still maintain a faith. And to me, to this podcaster, as long as the believer recognizes that this is an act of faith and a decision, I think that's okay. But they can't fault someone for coming to, the, to a different conclusion because it's not something that can be falsified. In contrast, we can, we can put the item on the shelf that many people discuss, the Book of Abraham and the historicity around the papyrus or the papyri and all, all related subjects of this, this particular book. Now, most of the stuff regarding this specific subject would fall under the category of falsifiable. We can look at the papyrus, we can translate it, and we can see that it does not match with what Joseph Smith wrote. So we can look at these things and falsify them. The book itself claims to be written by the hand of Abraham. But when the papyrus is translated, it is a, the text, after it was translated, turned out to be a book of breathings. Interestingly, so I'm fascinated by this, this sort of thing. The book of breathings was like a condensed version of the book of the dead. It contained typically what it would contain like spells and advice for the deceased to help them navigate the afterlife. That's what this papyrus was. It had nothing to do with what it was claimed to be. So comparing these two claims, the claim that, that God exists and the claim that Joseph Smith translated a papyrus containing the book of Abraham. The one can be falsified and the other cannot. So for these claims that can be falsified, you can't have belief in a thing that isn't true. That isn't to say that Joseph Smith wasn't a prophet. What that means is that this claim is wrong. And if that has an implication about your faith, then it needs to be addressed. And you could go through each of these items. Now, this list is not comprehensive that I'm going to share, but here are some of the things that people put on their shelf. The practice of polygamy, the past policies with blacks in the priesthood and blacks in their membership in the church, gender inequality, the policies of exclusion to the LGBTQ plus community, the historicity of the Book of Mormon, the first vision. I could keep listing item after item. You could throw on there both things that are problematic and truth claims of the church. Each of these things that we list would fall under one of these categories, falsifiable and non-falsifiable. Is there a problematic history about XYZ topic? 
and you can do the research and you can find out that yes, there was. And what the next step when addressing your shelf would be to examine what implications this item on your shelf might have on your faith, if any. I don't present this as a way to say that you have to decide to leave the church if you're going to examine your shelf. But if you are examining your shelf, I think it's helpful to categorize them this way. Because faith in something such as the first vision, something that we can't falsify, yes, there are aspects of it. I know there's going to be listeners that might have a different opinion on this, but there are aspects of it that you can doubt the authenticity of. But since we can't be there to witness them, we can't falsify them. This is the same reason that historians don't touch the miracles of Christ. These are things that are attested, but they're not things that we can go and falsify whether they happened or didn't happen. The same thing with most of the miracles throughout the Old Testament. There are things that people attest happened, people believe they happened, but we can't falsify them. By definition, a miracle is something out of the ordinary or supernatural. And since we don't have recordings or eyewitness accounts of these things, we can't disprove them. So they would, they would fall under the non-falsifiable category. If the listener goes down through the items in the CES letter or in a letter to my wife, I think it's fascinating. The majority of the items on these lists are falsifiable. It's the Book of Mormon historicity. It's the Book of Mormon translation issues. It's the Book of Abraham. It's the practice of polygamy and polyandry. It's the Kinderhook plates. It's the priesthood restoration. It's the testimony of the witnesses. It's the creation. The vast majority of the items that fall under these lists made by Jeremy Reynolds or others that have made, that have made lists such as this, the majority of them fall under the falsifiable category where you can look at these things and you can see you can see that the institution of the church has been dishonest about many of these items the wording there was really strong so let me rephrase that for example if we look at the claims in the book of mormon second nephi 2:22 alma 12:23 and 24 where it claims that there was no death on this earth before the fall of Adam. This is something that we can falsify because there was death before the time frame of when Adam and Eve would have existed. If we're going to go by the 7,000 year model, we know that the planet is, is upwards to four and a half billion years old. And there is a plethora of extinct species that have lived and died well before Homo sapiens came onto the scene. So, in an instance like this, if someone is inclined to believe, and maybe this is a play that the church could do down the road, they can reconcile these sort of discrepancies by acknowledging that the scriptures were working with the limited knowledge of geography and evolution that they had at the time when they were written. If they could free themselves from a literal reading and allow the text to be wrong, then I think a lot of these issues can move over to the category of non-falsifiable, where 
a believer can maintain their faith in the truth claims. Another, another idea or another concept that people put on the shelf that kind of straddles the line of falsifiable and non-falsifiable, it's the witnesses to the Book of Mormon. On one hand, we can examine the character of these people that were making these witnesses as to having seen the Book of Mormon. But since none of us were there, we can't know for certain what exactly happened in those exchanges. To quote a song from Hamilton, no one else was in the room when it happened. That isn't to say I'm saying these things did happen. I'm saying that we can't know for certain what took place in these exchanges. So I'm trying to, with this, allow space for a believer to be in the part of the conversation. When I myself examined these ideas, I looked at the characters and other claims that these people made, and the judgment I made about their claims was based on some of the other things that they said and did in their lives. Another claim that straddles this fine line between falsifiable and non-falsifiable is the whole translation process. Yes, we know that Joseph Smith was involved in money digging and he was involved in glass looking. For those that aren't familiar, that's when he put the rock in the hat and he would divine where things were hidden, buried treasure or gold mines and the like. Now, the allowance that I'm going to make here is I don't know if he actually saw things on the stone when he looked at them. I don't know what he believed and didn't believe about the translation process. And since I can't be certain, since I wasn't in the room when it happened, I don't know. I don't know what really took place. I don't know how the writing process was really handled. There are some writings of, of exchanges between these people. But we, we really don't know. And so this concept can't be falsified in the way that we could falsify a historicity claim. That isn't to say there aren't problems, because I think there are a lot of problems with this story, but it does allow space for a believer to maintain that faith. So what? Why go through all this? Why categorize them? Why try and think about them in a different way? Here's where I think both a believer and a non-believer might find value in an exercise like this. If a believer can look at these things as objectively as possible. They could eschew a literal belief in the book of Abraham or in a, the literal historicity of the scriptures, not just the book of Mormon, but all of the scriptures. Because there are problems with every single book. If the believer and the church is freed from these ideas, from this rigidity, then they can grow into a healthier organization. And they can have a candid conversation with a non-believer about these things. A believer and a non-believer can read the same stories of polygamy and the treatment of women, I was going to say in the early days of the church, but you really could say throughout the entire history of the church. You could look at these ideas, talk about the facts, and come to different conclusions on them. In a lot of these cases, the truth claims of the church are not falsifiable. 
I don't know if God came to Joseph and told him to practice polygamy. I don't know it. And I don't think anyone can prove that it didn't happen either. What we can examine is how it was practiced in the early days of the church. And we can examine if it was, if it was good or not. If a believer and a non-believer come to a conversation like this, and a believer says, I believe God commanded Joseph to, to do this, and a non-believer says, I can't prove that it happened or didn't happen, the believer and the non-believer can then examine the practice and whether or not it was good or bad for the people. How were those that practiced it, how were their lives affected or impacted by the practice? Were the people happy? Were they unhappy? Did they ever lie about it? Or were they always honest about the practice? And if you, if you have a conversation this way with a believer, you could concede and say, okay, maybe God did command it, but was it practiced in a way that a loving God would be okay with? And then you can examine it through a critical lens, even as a believer, to determine for these things that might be on the shelf, you could determine whether or not you agree with the practice or not. Even if it was commanded of God, you could say that it was commanded of God, but they did not practice it in a healthy way. That's a conclusion that a believer could make if they examine the evidence. And for me, as a non-believer, if I'm having a discussion with a believer and they come to a conclusion like that, they accept the evidence, they accept how it was practiced, and they still choose to believe, I think it's a healthier way to view faith. On the other hand, there are many things that would be shelf items that after you examine them and look at them, there's no room left for a faithful response. And it's in those instances that a believer should take them off the shelf. Now, what I'm proposing here is not Orthodox Mormonism, and I recognize that. Someone that's an active believing member deconstructing their faith and deconstructing the ideas that they hold about religion and truth. They can't really talk openly about these things in the congregation or at Sunday when they go to church. I recognize that this will put the believer in an uncomfortable position of nuanced faith, but that is the only way to maintain faith. When we can falsify and verify the truth claims, and so many of them, that when we do falsify them, when we do try and verify if they're true or not, they come up short and they prove to be inaccurate. We should not maintain those ideas. One of my favorite ones is, is the creation myths. If you go and look at the Genesis myths. I'm, I'm not going to talk about the Abraham one because that actually presents a different model. But if you go and examine both of the Genesis creation myths, if you draw out what it's explaining and try and picture their cosmology, it is a flat earth, kind of like a snow globe with water below it and water above it. And that was how they viewed the world. And that's okay. I'm, I'm okay with the, with the ancient, ancient Jews 
having a different cosmology than we do today. They didn't have the countless scientists that have proved that it's round before them to give them that information. They weren't working with the best knowledge that they had to develop this cosmology. So then the question I have, when we go and we look at this, the age of the earth and the creation of the earth, why do we have to hold to 4,000-year-old traditions about how the earth was created when these are things that we can falsify and examine and learn about? And then the reader can look at these myths from a different lens and try and take spiritual value from them without looking at it literally. I've quoted Joseph Campbell before, and I've mentioned that I, I love just about everything that he's written. But here's a great quote from him from the book, The Hero's Journey. And he says, I don't see any conflict between religion and science. Religion has to accept the science of the day and penetrate it to the mystery. The conflict is between the science of 2000 BCE and 2000 CE. And that words it perfectly. Where a religion has power, it's into the mysteries of life. It's into the, the lessons of how to be a good person and what is important to a culture or a community. But when we use them as science books, that's where they fall short because they are not that by any stretch of the imagination. I'll cite one more quote by him just because he's awesome. And I think it illustrates the point here. If someone is trying to maintain belief and be a nuanced member of the church, I think this next quote by Joseph Campbell is essential. This one comes from the Houston Chronicle back in 1986. The article is called Cultures Linked by Man's Ideas. And here's, here's what he says. Says, if myth is translated into literal fact, then myth is a lie. But if you read it as a reflection of the world inside you, then it's true. Myth is the penultimate truth. If we look at it not as literal, if we free it from a literal interpretation and look at it from a new lens, then we can still learn from these stories then we can still be disciples of Christ and follow after his teachings because they were excellent. Love your neighbor, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and to forgive other people freely. I mean, these are really valuable lessons. And if we look at these stories and free them, as I said, from a literal interpretation, we can learn from them and become better people and if a believer decides to, to maintain a faith for many of the claims, that's okay. But I think they need to be freed and liberated from a literal interpretation of many of them. Because when we examine them, a literal interpretation does not stand up. <laughs> I've chatted for way too long. <laughs> for me, I love talking about church history and religion and theology because it's fascinating. And I have learned so much from different theologies. Here's the point that I'm trying to put across. If someone is actively examining their shelf, I think if we put them into two separate categories, falsifiable and non-falsifiable, we can determine which things still have a basis for faith 
where a believer might still look at these items and say, I choose to believe, even though it's something that can't be proven or disproven. But for the items that are falsifiable, then we can look at them, re-examine the beliefs, and adjust them to be healthier for the entire organization. And that's what I'm suggesting here. Better understanding, better communication between a believer and a non-believer. Thank you so much for listening today. If this is content that you guys enjoy, I would greatly appreciate reviews, like it, subscribe to it on whatever podcast streaming app that you use. That helps get the word out and it helps more people find this. And uh, as always, I hope that you have an excellent day.